nature of the church. At the first of the year, uh, we have often considered what the Bible teaches about the church, including what the church is, uh, her order, her membership, and so forth, just so we can keep it before us. Who are we? What is the church in light of Jesus? And so this morning, I'd like us to consider together the value and the importance of the church. Now, it's, it's possible to overvalue the church. It's also possible to undervalue it. Uh, so consider how we might undervalue the church. That one's maybe more obvious, but um, even some who profess to be Christians might tend to think of the church as something that, that fits into their lives at the end. Uh, so they're committed to the church, but, but really only after most other things are done. And they may believe that they should love the church, and they may sincerely love Christ's people, but when it comes down to it, many other things have a greater priority to them. Also, very often today, some people think of the church as something that can be replaced, that it's not really essential. They think they can honor the Lord and grow in Him through their private study. And perhaps by reading the Word personally, by personal prayer, even researching things on the internet and studying on our own, reading books by ourselves. And they really feel that learning this way, and that they're learning so much, that the actual gathering of the church isn't as valuable. In a similar way, some people have Christian friend groups, which is good. It's a blessing to have friends that are Christians. I hope you do. Uh, but they think of these friends almost as their church that my friends are, are my church. But the Bible teaches that churches are local assemblies that have pastors and deacons and membership, and that true churches are covenanted together. That They gather on the Lord's Day and they observe the ordinances commanded by Christ. It's not just a friend group. In fact, sometimes people in the church aren't our friends. We love them. They're like brothers and sisters. Not every brother and sister is a friend. I hope they are. <laughs> But sometimes it's a family we have to learn to get along together in and fight in order to have. And so a church is not a simple, a natural friend group. It's a covenanted assembly. Still other people undervalue the church because they're not really committed to knowing and loving the people at church. But instead, they, they come on the Lord's Day to fulfill a sense of obligation. So they come, they know Christ commands it, and they hear the word preached, and they do their duty, but they don't really value the people to know them and to be known by them. But the church is not a preaching station. It's certainly not like a concert or an event to attend and then leave. It's an, it's an organism. It's a covenanted body, an assembly to know, to love. The truth is there are many ways to undervalue the church. And every single person does it, including this one right here undervalues the church. We need Christ's blood to wash us because none of us loves the bride of Jesus the way He does. But He freely cleanses us and forgives us for not loving other Christians the way that we should. And He also gently and patiently teaches us how to love His bride like He does by learning how much He loves us, 
But while some people undervalue the church, others seem to overvalue it. Do you know that's possible? To value the church too much. It certainly is. It's possible to look at the church as something that can fix us or should be able to fix us. Some might think that if the church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, it will be the ultimate hospital for souls. They look at the church as the center for soul health, wellness, where people can go for healing and life and strength to live well. But there's a problem here. And the problem is that not even in a very loving group of Christians can we be fixed the way that we need to be fixed. There is no human answer to the aches in our souls. No human answer to our wrong thinking or the remaining sins in our own hearts to our real enemies. Only Jesus can save us, not the church. Church cannot rescue us. Only His blood and righteousness can cover us. The church can't. Now, it's true that we can get much help from God's people. We can see and experience Christ's love through His people. I have. Many of you, I know, would tell me you have as well. I thank God for that. But in truth, God's people cannot love the way only Jesus can. Everyone in the church, isn't this true? Everyone in the church is a recovering Pharisee, a recovering rebel at heart, a recovering pleasure seeker, and so on. We're still recovering from our remaining sinful natures. People who are recovering cannot save people who need to recover. We don't have the strength or the power to do that. Now, historically, there's some theologies that taught that if you come to church and receive baptism and the Lord's Supper and you receive the elements of worship, then you are saved and you're being saved just because of receiving the, the ordinances of the church. Probably most of you don't think that way. I don't believe most of you think that way. But the evangelical counterpart says that the church has programs that can fix the problems in your life. Or we have books that can fix you, or pastors, or otherwise counselors, or even the community. That's, you know, small groups that can fix you. And while it's true that the church can and must offer you a lifeline, Jesus is at the end of the lifeline. Only Jesus can save. The only way of salvation, true fullness of life and well-being is Jesus himself. The church is no substitute for Jesus. Now, I believe we, I believe, (laughs) you might have a different perspective, but I believe we have a very loving church, a gracious church, one where there can be healing. But it's not because of who we are. It's because of who has saved us and who we can point to. And if we expect too much from the church, we will be greatly disappointed because Jesus never promises that the church can save us. He promises he will save us. But if you've ever overvalued the church to help you or become disappointed or disillusioned 
with God's people. The amazing truth is that Christ forgives, that his blood washes you. Amazingly, Jesus forgives people who think too highly of themselves. Some of us think that we are able to save other people. Others of us think others might be able to save us, and some of us do both. <clears throat> but the Lord Jesus looks down upon you with compassion, and he says, you are righteous. I forgive you. Your debts are canceled, and I love you. And you can trust me to rescue you because I'm good, and I will not disappoint you. Please turn with me, if you will, in, in the Word of God to Colossians chapter 1. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in verse 24, and we'll read to chapter 2, verse 5. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints, to them, that is the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his bride, the church, his body, the church, his family, that we are his brothers and sisters, that his father is our father. Lord, help us to believe and to grow in Jesus' name. Amen. So first consider the nature of the church. And if you will, look with me again at verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, people scratch their heads when they look at that. I think, why, why is Paul saying I'm filling up 
what is lacking in Christ's sufferings? What could possibly be lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Well, not the atonement. So nothing about his death to pay for the sins of sinners is deficient at all. In fact, nothing about what he did is deficient. But here's what's lacking, a present display of his suffering. Can you see Jesus suffering? No. And so God's purpose is you're going to see other Christians suffer. People ask, why do we suffer? Well, this is one of the reasons. Paul suffered. Why did Paul suffer? Why was he afflicted that he could be a present display of Christ's sufferings? In other words, when you see a Christian trusting God in deep affliction, loving others while being afflicted, what you're seeing is a faint reflection of Jesus. That is the nature of the church. Come and suffer with us. Come and be crucified. That's what we're called to do. This is... This is a place to take up the cross together. And then verse 24 says that the church is his body. We are the body of Christ. We're his suffering body. But he, that implies he's the head. Christ is the head of the church. It means the church is nothing without Christ the head. Think about this. I thought about this. See if you agree with it. You can't really, you cannot, if you've never met a person or seen their face, you can't identify who that is by just their body. The face is the identity of the whole person. And the face is that through which we hear the words of the person. So they reveal themselves. Their identity is found in the head. The head has the intellect which steers the whole course of the body. And so the identity of the body is found in the head. Who is the identity of the church? Christ. Only. Nothing else. Not friendships, not families, not nationalities, not preferences, not programs, not, you know, niches in the church market. None of it identifies us. What identifies us? Jesus. He is our identity. We're his body. He's our head. What does that mean? We are all to be oriented to him not to each other, not even outwardly. Now, I'm not saying we're not to be oriented inwardly or outwardly. We are, but the primary orientation of the church is to Jesus Christ, true God, true man, crucified and risen. We need to encourage each other in this way. Most of all, we need to remember that the head feeds the body. We don't orient ourselves to him. Rather, he feeds us and gives us life. How? Through his blood, through his body, on the cross, by his prayers, his imputed righteousness, the adoption of sons. He feeds us. We are Christ's and Christ is ours. And so we're look, we've been looking at the nature of the church. It's a suffering church that has Christ as the head and we are his body. That's the nature of the church. That's what we're called to be. But second, consider here from our text the ministry of the church. Now, do you know what the word ministry means? We use it. But ministry just means service. What is the service 
or the, the work to which the church is called. You can look with me at verse 25 where Paul speaks of the church, and he says, of which I became a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship, and that word means responsibility. So he's a servant that has a responsibility, a stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And what, what is it? To make the word of God fully known. Now that's Paul's responsibility as an apostle, but is, it's, it's the church's responsibility. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, The church of the living of God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The whole church, not just not just the, the apostles, not just the pastors, but the whole church. How do we, what is our mission? It's to proclaim the word of God, the whole word, to each other, to each other in fellowship in our lives with one another, to each other as we, as we seek to grow in Christ together. So that's the mission of the church, to preach the whole counsel of God. Now, there are, aren't there many things that could distract us from this? from proclaiming the whole word, to make the word of God fully known. Sometimes Christians get distracted from the word of God by present circumstances. They may start to think that because of certain difficulties or providences, we should depart from what the word of God teaches and start teaching or meditating on other things that people really need in this present moment. But what we're called to do is to make the Word of God fully known. Other times, it may be that churches have favorite parts of the Bible that they focus on to the neglect of others. Maybe a church loves the Gospels. And they mainly teach from those precious words of Christ. Or maybe they love the great and gracious words of Paul in the book of Romans. Or they love the great stories of the Old Testament, which seem to draw us completely into another world and of wonder and of delight. Or maybe they have certain doctrines that they think need emphasizing, like election or justification or holiness or faith or the church or the end times. Sometimes churches become convinced that the main problem in the church is that they need to get a certain doctrine. But what does this say? It says to make the Word of God fully known, that we know it all, that we're thinking on it all. But look at what it means to make the Word of God fully known. You can see it in verse 26. How do we make the Word of God fully known? Well, verse 26 says, it's the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them... God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. That's the Word of God. The whole Word of God. How do we make the Word of God fully known? Well, we make known the mystery hidden for ages, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim. Who do we proclaim? A person. Not, not just doctrines. Not just exegetical work out of the text. All that's got its place and is very important. But what's crucial is that Him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. 
warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. What's the goal of preaching the whole Bible and centering it on Jesus? That's actually the mission of the church, both in the church. By the way, just as a, a side note here, Colossians is written to the church. This is an inward ministry to them. This is the, 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 what the church is to be doing, is preaching the Word of God inwardly to itself. There's a mission as well that it goes outwardly, but if we were to go and talk to, say, Ted, you know what he says? He says his main work is to believers and ministering the Word to them to build them up. And so it's not as though it's inward or outward. It's, it's as though the mission is to preach the word for the what? The building up of the churches and, and, the, and the saints of the Lord Jesus. And then what does verse 28 say? To present everyone mature in Christ. What is maturity? It means growth. What's it look like? That the ministry of the word, the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, the fellowship of the saints, which is about the word, is to present everyone mature. I wonder if you think that. You come to church and you think, I want to build up other people so they can be mature. I mean, you could say that's arrogant, but you need to be built up to be mature too. I need to be built up to be mature too, right? We need it for each other to be built up unto maturity, you see? Present everyone mature in Christ. But what does that look like? Well, it must mean that the church thinks of Christ, and speaks of Christ together. It must mean that we're learning Christ's word and how to love each other in light of what Jesus has said, looking for opportunities to encourage each other. You know, we can do that when we gather. We can think, all right, I'm going to pay close attention to every conversation I have. I'm paying attention because I'm going to look for an opening to encourage I'm going to look for one opening if I can find one. I'm going to have, have my mind set upon the purpose for which we gather and use words to try to encourage. Here's a man in the church who's being somewhat imp- harsh and impatient with himself. And another brother is listening to this man talk and he notices the man is condemning himself. The man is talking about how he failed to measure up to something he thought he should measure up to, and he's being harsh to his own soul. And so this dear Christian brother looks at his friend and tries to say something encouraging. He tells his friend, you can be patient with yourself. Christ is patient with you. And that was it. Just two sentences short words and with those few words the man was reminded and encouraged of what is true in jesus and the man was grateful for his brother's encouragement in christ isn't this what it means to make the word of god fully known to bring it to each other's soul and fellowship and a community and love to one another we can go further maturity looks like taking risks to trust each other how do you have a community if you, you don't trust To really love each other, we have to reveal ourselves to one another. 
Jesus revealed himself. There's no way to love in sincerity or to love sincerely without any trust. And trust involves risk. We have to risk to know and to love each other. You know, it's risky to tell other people about how we're struggling or what we're valuing or what we hope for or who we are. It's risky because they might hurt us. But we can reveal the realities of our struggles, our joys, our hopes and loves. We need to do it wisely. I'm not suggesting we should reveal every single thing about ourselves. There should be a measure of restraint, certainly. You will not hear me say otherwise. The Bible doesn't teach otherwise. But we need to trust each other enough so that we can reveal each other to each other enough so we can encourage each other. What does this have to do with Christ? Well, only someone who believes that Christ is our righteousness that his blood covers us, can reveal things about themselves that make themselves vulnerable. Christ is my righteousness. I can risk revealing something about myself that might mean another person thinks I'm less righteous. If I know Christ loves me and forgives me, I can share myself with others who might not love me or forgive me. That's some of what maturity in Christ looks like. But why take such risks? Okay, Brother Tom, I hear you saying all that. What's the point, though? Why should we do it? Why is it worth it? Well, for, for, for love. It's so that if we trust others, they might trust us, and then we can minister to them in the Lord. That's how we build sincere relationships of love. But maturity doesn't just look like those things. It also looks like forgiving each other when we sin against one another. Being a part of the church means joining a group of people that God has put into your life to forgive. That's what it is. What is forgiveness? Canceling the debts of others remembering that Christ has forgiven them and so forgiving them as well. Love covers a multitude of sins and then really repenting, humbling ourselves and turning from our sins and loving and serving. And all this is what it means to be centered on Jesus, to make his word known in communion and community with one another. That's what the church is. So we're looking at the ministry of the church. How do you minister if there's not a relationship? You can't. There's a third thing about the church, which is the importance of a face-to-face gathering. This is what it says. If you look at, with me at Colossians 2, verses 1 to 5, we'll see three things. First, the benefits of seeing one another face-to-face. Second, warnings about what happens when we don't see each other face-to-face. And third, the joyful characteristics of face-to-face gatherings. So first, consider the the benefits of seeing each other face to face. Look look with me, if you will, at verse 1. Paul says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. You say, well, why would he want them to see him face to face? Well, verse 2, That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So it's, you know, texting somebody, you know, chatting with them, even on the phone. That's not a face-to-face. You, you can't have this. We're made as human beings to see each other face-to-face. And this is how we minister to each other. The word that in verse 2, it means Paul wanted to see them face-to-face in order that they may receive certain blessings. Now, he's speaking of his own ministry. You might say, well, that's special for Paul. Paul's unique. It's just about Paul. And yet, Paul's with them in spirit. He's given them his word or the word of Christ. And as they speak the word that Paul has given from Jesus to each other, they're seeing each other face-to-face and can build each other up that way as well. If you look up the phrase face-to-face in the New Testament, you find it all through there. We're supposed to be looking at each other. Seeing each other face-to-face is how we minister one to another. And what are the benefits of the face-to-face gathering in a true church where they're trying to be faithful? Well, the first benefit, it says in verse 2, that your hearts may be encouraged. We can't be encouraged unless we see each other face to face. We have to gather for encouragement. This is one reason we've wanted everyone to gather in the sanctuary together because it's easier to see each other face to face. It's really why we extended this and we went to the expense of making this place bigger for that reason so that we can see each other all face to face. There's a, a reason for it. The second benefit of being face-to-face is, according to verse 2, is that we may be knit together in love. You can't be knit together in love without face-to-face. That's what it says. Paul loved them. He was writing them a whole letter. They would think, oh, look at this nice letter. Paul loves us. But what did he say? We have to see each other face-to-face to be knit together in love. You have to. It's so crucial. You know, one of the reasons we have the fellowship meal on Sundays is exactly that. That's not an accident. We have the fellowship meal on Sunday so we can feast together and look at each other and talk to one another and try to encourage each other. You know, the New Testament speaks of love feasts. That's not the Lord's Supper. The love feasts are like what we're having here. That's what that is, to love each other. And so to be knit together in love. But there's a third benefit of seeing each other face to face, and and it's this. It's God's appointed way for us to reach full assurance of understanding and knowledge of Christ. Now, that, that might surprise some people that we have to gather with the church the covenanted assembly that's ordered according to God's will and see each other face to face, that God's appointed way, that is God's appointed way for us to reach full assurance and the knowledge of God and His promises and His goodness and His love and His word. That God's plan is for your faith to be strengthened through the church as it does what God commands it to do. How does that work? Well, it works because here in the church, we're 
we hear and practice the apostolic doctrine face to face. We learn Christ together. We have the opportunity to practice Christ's likeness toward one another, to speak of Christ, to love one another when we're gathered face to face. This is, by the way, something the whole New Testament teaches. It's not just right here in Colossians, but in Hebrews 10, verse 23, it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Do you hear that? Yep, Paul, Paul is saying, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So how do you hold fast the gospel? How do you hold fast Jesus? Well, verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We have to think, like coming to church, we should think, how am I going to Stir up one another to love and good works. It's the only way in which we hold fast. That's what the Bible's teaching. Face to face. And then the next verse, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together. Well, why? Why meet together? We have YouTube, you know? You can listen to the far better preachers than Tom on the internet. Great. <laughs> That's not why we gather. We don't gather for an event to leave. We gather for the face-to-face that we need each other to be built up in love, to hold fast to Christ. It's so crucial. It's not enough just to go to a church somewhere. We need our local church. The face-to-face isn't just be somewhere. Be face-to-face with somebody. No, it's these saints that you're living life with over time that actually the relationships become deeper, some of them more difficult. We reveal ourselves to each other more. We have to persevere, and some, it gets deeper and more joyful, and it works out, and it's how we grow together in community. Now, that's not saying we, we're not allowed to take vacations or... Ha- ever have opportunities to go other, to other churches? Certainly. Rather, it's saying our faith is strengthened as, and we grow as Christians as we participate in the local church of which we're members. Lord's Day to Lord's Day to Lord's Day. And then between the days, as we seek to serve each other. And so the first thing we've seen is the benefits of gathering face-to-face. But second, consider a warning. What happens if you don't gather face-to-face? Look at verse 4, if you would. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Well, it's a warning about what happens when we're not strengthened according to the gospel, according to the word of Christ, the whole counsel of God through the apostolic doctrine that includes a face-to-face element. We're deluded by plausible arguments. What does plausible mean? Believable. Like, there's an answer to my problems that's not in the word of God. And now there are answers to some of your problems, like how to fix a flat tire and that kind of, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the problems in your soul and mind, the real problems Where are they found? The answers in Jesus. And through the means he's given, the church. But when we're away from the church, there are plausible arguments. 
against what Christ says. Our minds are prone to be led astray by what sounds like truth when we're not connected with Christ's people. We'll be totally convinced, too. That's what happens as we start to become seduced and completely convinced there's some other answer or special solution to what I'm dealing with in my soul. There, today, this might look like spending more looking for truth and spending more and more time looking for every kind of comfort and in media to restore and strengthen your soul or through the millions of books that we have nowadays, conversations, watching people talk who have amazingly gifted to speak and they're on every outlet and they sound like they know what they're talking about and they're addressing your problems and they've got it all figured out. It's easier to understand than the Bible. You just feed on that. But God says that putting more stock into things outside of Christ in the gathered assembly will not end well because Satan intends to delude you with plausible arguments. He wants to. He intends to delude you with plausible arguments. So that's a warning. But then thirdly, Paul speaks of the joyful characteristics of a faithful face-to-face gathering. And he says here in verse 5, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, just to show you that Paul isn't just spouting off a couple of ideas he has right here. This is consistent through what Paul says. He says it in another place. 1 Corinthians 7.35, Paul says that he wants to promote good order in the church of Corinth and secure your undivided attention to the Lord. That's what brings rejoicing to Paul and to the hearts of every faithful saint. Good order and undivided attention to the Lord. So let's look at those. What is good order and what is firmness in your faith in Christ? Well, good order means that everything is done decently and good in good order in a church. The Reformers spoke of a well-ordered church in three ways, and they're all about Jesus. A well-ordered church is first where Christ, the gospel of Christ, is clearly taught and applied. Second, that the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper reflect the true gospel of Jesus, that they're rightly administered. And then third, that the church practices formative and corrective discipline to guard the true faith of the gospel. That's what good order is. And it brings rejoicing. It's a well-ordered church. brings joy to God's people when we gather face to face. But second, Paul speaks of firmness of the faith, of faith in Christ. So what does that mean, firmness of faith? It doesn't mean you perfectly believe. I mean, these are the Colossians, after all. They've got all kinds of problems. You know, some of them were being tempted to be led astray to weird things like the worship of angels, you know, or asceticism. You know, so this is not, Paul's not saying, I'm rejoicing in the firmness of your faith because you have such a strong, clear faith that's resounding. He's not saying that. Here's what firmness of faith is. Whatever Christ says, I'm determined to believe it. I'm determined to believe him. Now, someone can deceive you. And you can, someone can come along and say, here's what Jesus is saying and lead you astray, but you're just sincerely trying to believe what Christ says. Firmness of faith is 
Whoever Jesus is and whatever he says, I'm with him because I know who he is at heart. And I have a firm faith in him in that sense. Now, it doesn't also mean no one had, it doesn't mean everyone had this kind of firm faith in, in the church of Colossae. We can have weaker faith. And we should bear with each other in our weaknesses. And we need to try to encourage and build each other up in our weaknesses. But the, what brings rejoicing is a firmness of faith in Christ. We're committed to him to knowing him and growing in him. And a face-to-face gathering is where this happens. And it's how this is built up. And these are reasons to rejoice. And so there we've seen three major things related to the importance of the church. First, the nature of the church. The nature of the church is a suffering church, and it's the body of Christ. Second, the ministry of the church. The ministry of the church is to proclaim the whole counsel of God, which means Jesus, in word and in the way we relate to each other. And then thirdly, the importance of face-to-face gatherings in the church, that we need the church to grow as Christians. That's not always a popular idea today, but it's just what the Bible says. We need the church to grow and to be faithful to one another, and the Lord is faithful to all of His promises to His people as we look to Jesus together. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us, for your patience toward us, that you bear with us in our weaknesses and in our sins, and that you keep every promise you've ever made, that you're not going to leave us or forsake us. We thank you for the church, and I thank you, and we thank you for this particular local church. Lord, help us to be faithful, to look to Jesus, to try to build each other up, in love and in truth, not to idolize the church and certainly not to minimize it, but to see it as you do, the bride of Christ, and to love, learn to love her as Jesus does, looking unto him in his name. Amen.